This episode is brought to you by Belulu Studios, a small event space located in Savannah, Georgia at 3131 Bull Street. For more information, please go to belulustudios.com. That's B-U-L-U-L-U studios.com. Hello, this is Kevin. Thank you for listening to The Ten Frame. Today, Kelly and I talked with Justin Archer, an artist and educator based in Atlanta, Georgia. His current body of work consists of large-scale wood carvings. We also learned more about a sculpture that is currently on view at Mocha GA's biennial show titled Gathered Six. This group exhibit will be on view until January 13th. Just a heads up, the next 12 or so episodes of The Ten Frame will be interviews of the artists that are in the Mocha GA show. For more information about this exhibition, please visit mochaga.org. And if you would like to learn more about my own work, you can follow me on Instagram at Kevin Will Paint. And please give Kelly a follow at Kelly K. Thompson Art. I hope you enjoy the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's a studio day. So um, I'm always grateful for this. Right on. Yeah, those are good. Are you, are you going to yeah, be you guys. running the chainsaw today? I'm not. No, I uh, I try to get all that done and as uh, immediate as a, a window as possible, so that I don't have to revisit it. Um, it's a lot of fun, but it's a huge mess. So I can imagine in my studio, it's it's not ideal. Do you have a certain space that you just do that part of it? Yeah. So I I'm my studio is basically not basically it is my basement, um, and so we have a two car garage. So. This is where I work, but then when I chainsaw, I just roll everything out to the driveway. Gotcha. Um, which, you know, behind our house is a bunch of trees, so it looks like we're in this remote, isolated place, and we're just 10 minutes from downtown. It's, uh, so. Best of both worlds. Yeah. I noticed on your website you're from, are you from Texas, or you went to school there? Yes, I'm from, just out, basically I'm from the suburbs just outside of, Dallas, and then I went to school in Denton, Texas, which is also just like the opposite side of the Metroplex. Um, yeah. So I moved here. My wife and I moved here in 2019. So we've been here for four years now. What uh, brought you there? Uh, teaching at SCAD. So I'm okay. currently teaching uh, sculpture. So in 2019, I was hired to teach foundations and then Two years ago, I transferred to the sculpture department, which has been great. Nice. Congrats. That's awesome. Well, before we jump in, can you just let everyone know where they can find you online? Sure. Yeah. Um, You guys can find me on Instagram, j.w.archer. My website is jwarcher. And I don't really use Facebook very often, so I think those are probably the best two spaces. Right on. So just to jump in, Kevin and I have been talking to a lot of artists and curators and other people in the, in the business to kind of get a sense of how other artists get into the art world, so to speak. So it's geared towards uh, emerging artists. We were trying to gain information about, you know, your journey, things that have worked, things not, maybe some of your process and your, your process looks like one thing that probably has an amalgamation of things going on. So if you could just, let everybody know uh, the process. I'm really interested in the process for sure. 
Yeah. So I guess maybe I'll go back a little ways to talk about how my process evolved. And then I can talk about what I'm currently working on because it's, I use a lot of digital fabrication processes in my work, but the final output is very manual, very labor intensive. So uh, it's maybe a different way of working than, than what most people are used to. Um, but when I first started graduate school, the 3D scanning and 3D printing technologies had just become available for universities to own in art departments and things like that. It was no longer just like engineering, um, mechanical engineering, things like that. And so I started grad school my first semester learning about 3D scanning and 3D printing. Um, my work before that had been non-objective, just spatial constructions, I guess you could say. And uh, for the first time, I was like, oh my gosh, I could make something representational without a skill cap because I don't have to be, I'm not making it, right? The computer's making it. Um, and so that's where I kind of got my start. And I, I used a scanner to scan myself. I 3D, well, I CNC machined a life-size version of myself. And it was super cool because it was like looking at me. Um, but it was also this really weird moment where I was totally disconnected from the object. And I don't know if you guys have ever had that experience where you make a work. It's normal to finish it, I feel like, and you put it in the world. And then there's this kind of disconnect where it's like, it's not mine anymore. It belongs to the public. It belongs to the collector, whoever. Right. Um, did you use light? But for me, how, how did you scan I, the image of yourself or how did you scan it? Was it great, LIDAR or polycam? Yeah. So I used, uh, it was one of the earliest 3D scanners available. It was back in 2012, 2012. Um, and so it was, I, I don't remember. I know it cost $50,000. Um, uh, so it was a huge deal to get yeah. to use it. Uh, and the amazing part is like scanning technology has evolved so far that like when I first did that scan, I had to hold myself up with a cane because if I moved at all, the scan would glitch right. uh, and then I couldn't capture hair. So I had short hair back then, but I just ended up with a hole in my head. Yeah. And um, so it, it was just this really interesting. Yeah. So I, I don't know what it was called. It might've been an architect or an Artec um, okay. scanner, I didn't mean which is a really big you. company now. I didn't mean no, no, no. Uh, it's a good question. Yeah. yeah. And my, and now I'll talk about it a little bit later. I use much more uh, enthusiast software now to get my results uh, more manageable. Um, but yeah, so it, there was this disconnect that was not familiar, not comfortable, not like, oh yeah, it's mine. But then I gave it to the world. It was like, I don't feel like I own this object. I don't feel like it was ever mine. Because a computer made it, a CNC machine made it, and, and all I did was glue the pieces together. And it, that was this really great moment for me of learning and realizing that uh, artists have a relationship, or at least to me, artists have a deep relationship to their materials. And it's this intuitive, emotive relationship that takes decades to develop, maybe. Um, and I didn't feel that. I had none of that. And so it, it for me, at least as an artist, it told me that while this process is interesting, the tactile nature of physically making was super important and, and was essential if I was going to be happy with what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of backstory. Um, 
So I started, after that, I started working on using 3D scans to create models. And then I would um, hand carve them in wood. Uh, I didn't know anything about the figure when I started doing this. So I made a lot of really bad work. And uh, my advice to my younger self at times would have been like, maybe you should start small. But I think I know what I know because I made so many bad life size figures. Uh, Best way and, to learn. And I right? think, you know, that's a, uh, yeah, right. It's like, oh, this isn't it. Let's try it again. No, this isn't it. But but I could never have learned when if I made something a foot tall, right. two foot tall, which I tried to do and was just never, never really satisfied. Um, so when you were using, so I the, started the the uh, yeah, the three D printed models. Did you're using those as reference? Yeah, and at the at the time, like I, you know, I wasn't. I, I have a degree in sculpture. I was never trained formally in representational sculpture. So calipers, digital calipers, like those cool pin machines where they like roll up a cart and check every measurement on an object and then pull it away and move it. I didn't know anything about any of that. So I was using these uh, 3D scan models as reference, but I didn't, I was basically, it was me and a tape measure uh, trying to go from quarter scale with a tape measure to life size. Wow. Um, and it was, yeah, which is part of a lot of the loss of translation, I think, right? Using the wrong tools, not not having anyone at uh, where I went to school. We had really great professors, but but there weren't any three dimensional artists working with the figure, and so it was a lot of self learning. Um, and I was, yeah. So I started when I no longer was using that really nice scanner. I started using a Xbox Connect scanner, so you could hack an Xbox Connect. Um, and use it as a 3D scanner, which was awesome. Yeah. The scans were terrible, but uh, but it was cool. And then eventually, uh, I got a, a scanner that mounts to an iPad, and that really gave me something close enough to life that I could reference it and then use photos to complement it. Right. Um, so yeah, my that's half my process. So that's the digital half. The physical half is like this really kind of um, methodical practice of taking large pieces of lumber, cutting them down into one inch by one inch strips, and then reassembling them all back together. Um, and a lot of my work, um, if you guys look on my Instagram or my website, yes. a lot of it has this sort of digital aesthetic mm -hmm. and these, these kind of fragmented pixelated moments. And the way that that process works itself out is by gluing all these pieces together. I'm intentionally leaving some of them with negative spaces between them or these voids that I create. So you're working so then subtractively. As I'm sculpting. Yeah, exactly. And then as I sculpt into it, the voids that I left behind originally, they kind of emerge out of the sculpture. And so sometimes I plan them and I'm really careful about where they are. And then other moments I try to like, surprise myself and let things just kind of happen um so that yeah re i guess reflects some of the work your earlier work the glitches in the models and it references those glitches yeah absolutely and i think you know for me there there's this really beautiful conceptual conversation between the digital and the physical and, and i often look at the digital space is like this this really nice metaphor for the spiritual or the mental or the emotional landscape that we experience right it's very tactile in our bodies and our minds but it's very not tactile in the real world right you can't grab an emotion 
Um, and so the digital kind of, yeah, has functioned for me as this metaphor for the unseen experiences of our humanity. And then, yeah, responding to the ways that, you know, software has these weird glitches or these fragmentations that happen. Um, some of that's probably the eight bit quality from growing up playing, you know, yeah. original Nintendo and, uh, that being the first way I translated digital in my, in my head was a Mario and Duck Hunt and things like that. Right. So ET. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. So. so I, I read something in your, uh, was either in an artist statement or, or um, an interview that during your foundational work, you were interested in physics, um, specifically uh, quantum physics and string theory and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. That's something that I, I am drawn to as well. And I could see that um, kind of connection between uh, this underlying grid of the universe and this, this, you know, this grid that's emerging out of some of the work. Do you still have that kind of connection or are those references still there for you? Yeah. They are in the ways that you're describing and also in, in the actual process of the work itself. Um, I was having a conversation the other day and I think I realized that my attraction to quantum mechanics and string theory was really not so different than my attraction to the digital spaces, right? These unseen forces that shape and influence the physical world and the way we engage with it. Um, but my, my early work was actually a really similar process to what I do now. It was just not figurative. Um, so I would take all these blocks of wood or I would use steel tubing or I would use plexiglass rods and I would construct these forms that essentially were like three-dimensional puzzles. So every time I would build them, they would be new, right? You'd, you could never see the same image more than once. And that gets into the ideas of quantum mechanics and string theory and this idea that the deepest fabric of our being is in constant movement and flux, which is obviously super interesting and um yeah it was really compelling to me so when i i think essentially there was this point where um i my work has always asked questions about what it means to be human i think quantum mechanics was a way of asking that question and i think uh to my surprise after undergraduate i became a christian and so the questions i asked started changing a little bit I still wanted to talk about uh, these deep realities, this like, multi-faceted complexity of the human experience, but science was a very abstract way to talk about it. The human figure became a much more representational way to talk about it. And uh, I, yeah, I, so yes, there, there's always this underlying current of like the repetition of the individual piece in the way that sometimes it's grain shifts in one direction or the other. Um, there's this like really incredible visual flux that happens in the objects that is just a byproduct of using wood and then cutting it into pieces and putting it back together the wrong way, I guess you like. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's always something in the work that's, that's kind of tying back to that. Um, the ephemerality and the permanence of, of being human. So as I don't know if that, that gets you a question. That's kind no, of, no, that's a great, that's a great answer. Way. And uh, sorry, I just want to add on to, I follow a lot of 
current trends in AI technology and, and you know, mm-hmm. they're learning new things about um, quantum mechanics all the time. And it seems it folds in on itself, the science and um, the spiritual world when the deeper scientists seem to look into the fabric of our universe, it seems to be that there's some kind of design there where it could be referenced as grand design. And then you hear about simulation theory and all that, the deeper, matrix. Uh, yeah, it, the matrix, but also yeah. it seems like just because there's an underlying fabric, there's a lot of room for interpretation. Right. I think art, you know, it helps me work those things out of my own head. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's to me, like critical to art making is asking questions, questions that don't necessarily have clean answers or obvious answers or even resolved answers, right? These big human questions. And yeah, it's definitely something that I'm always trying to deal with in, in the work. Yeah. Right. Right. Sorry. You're on. No, I, <laughs> so this conversation's through zoom and we're able to see your studio or a glimpse into your studio. It, it reminds me of either like a movie, movie, like the back of house of a movie, you know, where they're making models and, um, I don't know, like Star Wars is something that I would imagine. But I, I say that to say, like, I, I became aware of your work through the Gathered uh, Six show yeah. at MoCA, which is currently running. Um, and I'm just curious. So I, I view you as an artist that's showing in galleries and you're an educator. Do you have any interest of doing other things outside of gallery work or museum work? like into movies or I don't know what that world would look like, but are, are you in, in tune with that at all? That's, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, okay. no, that's fair. Not, not, not out of intention. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do. I think, you know, I, over the summer, I just had an exhibition and it was the first time I tried to curate the environment. So I built these digitally fractured pillars in the space and, so all of the work was displayed with these pillars around them. And so yes, that's it, a... it started to get at this alternative environment of like, maybe not like ancient Greco-Roman museum meets like digital deterioration. And yeah. that's kind of a, that's, that's an idea I was, I was playing with. That speaks more clearly to what I was hoping to hear, I guess. I like, you creating your own environments and inserting these fragmented forms and uh, glitched material into it. That's exciting to me. Yeah, it's definitely an interest of mine. And I think I've loved architecture for a long time. I've loved installation work. I I think you have the the huge image with the light projected on it. Yes. Yeah. My background's in architecture also. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that piece feels very architectural to me. And it really, it, it's not just an object in the room, it transforms that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I've uh, always loved, but never, maybe never felt comfortable trying, or maybe never felt confident trying or, and I think uh, over the summer, I was having a solo exhibition, and I was like, I, this, these works just can't be put in a white space, like it, it feels wrong. It doesn't really immerse the audience in in this other experience it's just they become these 
things we study and not the space we inhabit. That sounds exciting yeah. to me. I can't wait to see future work in, in, in that world, you know, an evolution in that. Wow. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit too about your, your paint application on some of your sculptures. I noticed that, that they did have um, kind of a minimalist um, painterly um, application on certain edges. Uh, how do you how did, how did that come about when when you started mixing media and and doing that? What was the impetus? Yeah, you, like the 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 blue, like the transition where things are blue. Yeah, that for me was actually a result of using digital technology. Um, so in programs, I use a Netfab, which is a it's really more for taking models and slicing them and repairing them. But when you slice a model uh, and you remove the two halves, one surface is a color. So the sliced surface becomes a different color than the model color. And there was something about like contrast for me that was really compelling. Um, And so the first work I started doing on, I painted the interiors of these bodies. So the whole sculpture would be all raw wood. And then there'd be this big void in the, in the chest and it would be painted blue inside with these uh, environments constructed in the space. And so that, for me, that, that color was really my way at trying to grab the feeling of the digital as a, not just as like a shape, but as like a, a, an actual feeling, uh, whether that's color or surface, I try to paint everything I use blue for, I think eventually maybe I'll use other colors. Who knows? Blue's my vibe right now. Uh, but I, face. yes, my blue face. Um, although I'm less sad than maybe Picasso was. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, it for me, it's a way to try to flatten the object to where it does start to feel like it's sculptural, but it's also two-dimensional. And so that's, kind of the realm I'm trying to play with is forcing this kind of physical and intangible material in the same object. I kind of got that as well, just with the material itself, because at different distances, you know, zooming in and zooming back out, the grain of the wood almost looked like a marbling texture. So at Mm. at certain levels, it almost looks like it functions as uh, stone. Is that... Mm. That's and cool. It, yeah, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's, I mean, that's just, I, I couldn't tell that it was wood unless I kind of zoomed in, took a little bit more of a, a deeper look into it. Yeah, I, that is just coincidental. It's a good coincidence. Um, but I have been, you know, I, I, it, I don't know if you guys are familiar with 3D modeling, I guess from coming from architecture probably. Definitely, yeah. Um, the... The idea for me, I think, started coming coming out as I, I see every mark of the chisel as this expression, this, this um, a way to capture my interaction with the subject. Kind of like a clay sculptor would leave their thumbprint in the form, right? I, I saw it as that initially. And so that's why I was drawn to the material because it's very expressive. Right. But I started... Over time, I've started using flatter chisels, and I've started seeing these moments as voxels, um, the little triangles that exist on a 3D model. Mm-hmm. 
And so I've kind of in my head, I've started to understand them almost as this like expression of the digital, but in a very tactile, traditional material. So, um, yeah, the fact that the material has some some of those qualities is really cool. That's uh, it's good to hear that it's doing maybe some things even I didn't expect. So we always ask what people like, what's the noise? What's the sound in your studio when you're making work? Is there music playing or is there podcasts or all of it? Silence? Um, uh, yeah, all of it. Um, it depends on where I'm at. I go through phases and I don't know if you guys, sometimes I'm like really into hip hop and I think that's usually when I'm really busy and I know I have a lot to get done. And so I try to hype myself up. Sometimes I'm listening to like really relaxing indie music uh, while I'm also carving. Podcasts are great for me, but I can't listen to them when I'm really focused. So when I'm working on the expressive parts of a sculpture, podcasts, I can learn, I can listen, I can do audiobooks. Um, but when I'm working on like the face or the hands or something that like, if you make a mistake, it's super obvious and everybody's going to see that the nose got chipped off. I feel like I have to, I have to get in this like really hyper-focused space. So yeah, it really depends on the, on the day. Um, you mentioned like some, maybe some errors that have happened on your work. How do you get around, because it's wood, you know, things happen. How do you. Is that wood glue and, uh, and some pieces that people can't see it. I'm sure there's got to yes. be some, some repairs that, that, that happen as you go along. Yes, uh, there are. In fact, a piece I'm working on now, I, um, the head's tilted. And so when I cut it with the chainsaw, I, I, over, I overestimated how much material to take away. So I had to go back and cut blocks away so I could re-adhere new ones to build the volume back up where it needs to go. Um, that happens less often now than it used to. Um, sometimes I'd, I'd cut the ear and it would just look terrible. So I would just chop it off and then oh, put nice. a new block on and then restart. Uh, that's probably the most beneficial way that my work uh, at least serves the, the process yeah. because it's laminated. If I have to chip a block out it takes a lot of work but it's doable um and so you, yeah it's i can hide some of the errors in the process um and that's yeah a really really fortunate thing for me when i go to working from life-size you know trees and making a figure i don't know what i'm going to do when i make a mistake <laughs> uh, it'll start as an oak and then end up as a bonsai when you finally get that yes that's it um, I want to back up just a second, and this is something that I'm interested in. When you get the data, when you get the 3D modeling data, what's the platform you use after that? Where, what do you bring that data into um, as far as a modeling software um, to get your, your forms? Yeah, so usually it, it bounces between two spaces, um, I guess, two modeling spaces and then a, a printing space. But I pull everything initially into NetFab, which is a um, an Autodesk software. As an educator, I have access to it. It's super expensive otherwise, so I would not use it. Most Autodesk probably problem software is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I mean, it's meant for, it's not really meant for what I'm using it for, but uh, it does work really nice. Right, a lot of commercial. So I always initially, 
Yeah, lots of industrial design functions. Um, yeah, just not really, not really organic forms. So, but it, its repair function is one of the most advanced I've found from any software. So I have tried. I had a a colleague of mine send me a model, and it was like thirty thousand shells, where like he had sculpted a figure, but like the laces were each a shell, and like the hair was all shells and it's just this huge mess. And he tried to repair it in ZBrush, tried to repair it in Blender. It, it could never get it to be a, a consolidated single image. And with NetFab, I was able to consolidate the whole thing into one shell, which is amazing. Um, so that's the software I start with. I bring everything in there for a quick auto repair. Sometimes if something's weird, I'll grab polygons and delete them and then repair the surface. Uh, and then from there, if I need, it's, it's kind of interesting because I don't really re-sculpt my, my scans um, unless I really have to do something major because I also work from photo references. So they almost function as like the gesture. And then once I get the gesture, I use photo references to sharpen everything. Um, but when I do need to repair, I use Blender. And I'm a huge advocate of Blender. It's free software. It's really powerful. It's constantly updated. Um, yeah, that's something I'm using right now. Be, yeah, I've, I've really yeah. gotten into Blender over the last year, and it, it's amazing the fact that that it is free yeah. and uh, and it does. And I think some for some some of the educators that I talk to that are that are teaching this as well are starting to use Blender, and I think it's going to be a little bit more widely accepted as a commercial use software. As yeah. Well. I, yeah, I think so too. I mean, I every um, every public work I've done, every commission I have done starts with a 3D scan, but I bring it into Blender and I use Blender's rendering program to demonstrate what the image is going to be. And I, I I really think it's a game changer um, to not just be like, here's a sketch, and that's what it's going to be in real life. It's it, it the software is incredible. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think for something that's free, uh, there are very few programs who can compete with uh, how multidimensional the, the software. Right, that's good. But yeah, so I, I take. Yeah, I'll there continue you go. to use it now. They don't. <laughs> yeah, they don't pay me. They don't know I exist, no, but no. Uh, I do appreciate their support. Maybe they might. Maybe they might. We'll throw some um, Blender icons on the Insta ads. There we go. Uh, so yeah, I, I bounce between those two and then, um, I kind of, my printer is relatively small, my 3d printer. So I have to slice everything, but I typically do that in, in NetFab as well. So yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, Sorry to get too deep. Not that you asked, but no, no. I mean, I think it's good for artists who are trying to learn how to use these programs. What, I mean, there's thousands of programs I feel like. So, um, and then you didn't, you guys didn't ask this you asked earlier about scanning, but uh, currently I've been using um, a scanner I got like probably eight years ago, actually now. Um, but it's the um, structure sensor, and it just goes on an iPad. The when I first bought it, it was like this unknown pro like company. They just released this kind of prototype scanner that plugged into an iPad, and uh, now they're they have much better scanners that are used for medical industry but they also uh, use them for architecture for 
they call them as-built models. So if you, um, if your client wants to renovate a house or something like that, instead of mm -hmm. going in and measuring precisely where the windows are or ceiling heights, material, like wall thicknesses, you bring in surface and isn't it surface or structure? I can't remember the software, the iPad software. Oh, yeah. Structure. They have okay. uh, one of theirs is for, for room scanning. Yeah. Yeah. Back yeah. whenever I yeah, tried, so tried to use it, it would, it wasn't as advanced as it probably is today. Like um, maybe wall trims would be kind of bubbly. Maybe like what you're referencing with your hair. It just couldn't, it glitched out. Really? It really couldn't define those. It couldn't pieces. quite grab. Yeah. Yes. But. Yeah. And I think the the sensor, the, the, I have their first gen version. So mm -hmm. I'm sure if I try to scan a room, it would be the same. Um, sometimes you'll get like uh, artifacts in the background from like the environment. Yep. And it'll try to grab a chair, but it'll only grab like the corner of a seat and then like part of the leg and, mm -hmm. and it just looks really strange in space. So, uh, this was yeah, probably I think like 2015 now, or so somewhere around there, 2014 yes. or something like that. Yep. That's when I, that's when I first got it. And I mean, it's, we're eight years in and for tech to last eight, tech like that to last eight years is a pretty, pretty good testament to the hardware. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who are some of your influences? They're varied. So um, there is right now there's this really incredible, I don't even think it's a resurgence. I just think social media has made it accessible to non-European and Japanese artists. Uh, there are Japanese and specifically Italian artists working in wood with the figure um, and, and just the way that they innovate this tradition has been incredible for me. I think um, first coming across these artists' work, um, Aaron Demetz is one who's influenced me since I first started graduate school. Um, there's another Japanese artist. I'm gonna, I'll try to find his information on Instagram and send it to you. But he does uh, these. He was a street dancer, and so he does these really geometric, angular, like huge clothed dancers in these like really awesome poses um all with wood just like this super traditional japanese process of carving but with these really contemporary subjects it's really great Beautiful. um so those are the artists who challenge me i think with the figure who show me like hey there's way more possible than what you are thinking and um and that's been super helpful um uh, in terms of like the way maybe i think about art uh, Makoto Fujimura, who's a Japanese-American painter, he works in the Nihonga tradition. So he um, is the first non-Japanese citizen to go to Japan to study at this really prominent school. Um, and so the way he thinks about art making, how sacred, how important it is to make art, how important it is to know our materials and, and to relate to them, he's been probably the most important conceptual artist. He works non-objective painting. Um, so very different visual language than I use, but, but he's been really huge as well. Um, and Anthony Gormley, I'm going to throw him in there because he's, he's a master with the figure. Right. Nice. I'm not familiar with those artists. So I'll have to do my homework and look it up. 
I just wanted to kind of see if you had any advice for other emerging artists who are kind of at the beginning of their career and making it in the art world, um, whether it be, you know, pursuing a gallery um, representation. It doesn't have to be that specific, but do you, not as an educator, but as an artist, um, through your yeah. journey, do you have anything that sticks out to you as that was something that was very helpful to you, that you could share? Wow. Yeah, I, there's so much, but maybe the most important thing for me, I, was, I hesitate to share this under the assumption that like there's only one way to do it. But for me, um, I have always been a firm believer that you should create the work you're really passionate about. Um, it took several years before any of my work sold. I had solo exhibitions where none of my work sold where no opportunities happened. And, you know, those are really disheartening moments as an artist to be like, wow, I just put a thousand hours into like making and planning and installing and showing. And like, I, I made like 400 bucks. Like, how is this? This is not sustainable. Um, and those were pretty discouraging moments, you know, but I, I have always kind of held to this vision that I want to make the work that I love. And I don't want to make my art practice. I never want to make um, feel like a day job where I come into the studio and I'm like, Oh God, another day here. And so that has been probably the most important thing that I have, I've clung to. Um, it's not practical. It's uh, very time consuming, but I, I think because I stuck with my practice long enough, um, it has been fruitful. Just but stay the course. It like, took years. Find what you believe in and what brings you joy and excites you and just follow it through. Yeah. 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 And that's because I, I think, you know, there's a lot of ways to make money as an artist, um, especially now with YouTube and Etsy. And there's so many efficient ways of making art be profitable. But the passion, you know, when you make something and you love it and you're excited about it, when you share that with somebody, it's contagious. And, and I think when you make something because you're trying to turn a profit, it becomes harder for that to be contagious. Um, and it might not be for and, the audience that you're showing, like your energy and you're excited about the work, but maybe it's just not in the right room yet right you just keep following and totally. try to get it into that right room so you get the audience that appreciates what you're doing yeah yeah and you learn like oh man i really thought this was a brilliant idea and actually maybe it fell a little flat but what i learned in that was like now i can make these tweaks and like the work can really do what i was wanting it to do and uh yeah that, that all takes time that's um, great advice i think yeah i think it's it's the hardest piece of advice to follow myself. Um, but, but it's definitely the one that has made me the most uh, grateful when I'm in my studio. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's a great answer. And that is very hard, especially for people that are just starting out because obviously you have to be able to support yourself and make a living. But at the end of the day, if truly what you want to do is, is make art, you have to do what you love or else it, you're, it does become a, just a job and you're more of a salesman than really just, and what you want to do is invite somebody in to your world and 
hopefully they get some joy out of what you've made and how you create. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly it. And it, it isn't always easy. I mean, when I first graduated with my master's, I had three jobs. I was adjuncting part-time, I was making furniture, and I was working for a, a fabrication company that made themed environments. Um, and then trying to be in my studio. You know, and those are those are the months where you're like, why am I? I, I made the wrong choice here. Uh, but you know, again, it, it hasn't. It's not always easy, but I think it's always worth it. Sorry, and I, I totally cut you off, Kevin. No, no, no. I, I, one of the jobs that you were mentioning was that they make themed environments. Is that what you said? Yes. Like um, scenic, scenic work, the, kind of. Yes, for like dentist offices and uh, corporate companies and churches and uh, bases where like uh, kids live on the base. And so they have like, it's basically themed environments for, right on. for kids. So that's what I thought. I just, yeah. I wasn't sure if that's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, I mean, it's a lot of work, but all of that was a lot of work, but yeah, I think better that than like going to the studio and wishing I wasn't there. Yeah, right. Like for that's sure. a, what's on the horizon for you? What's, what's next up for you? Well, I have two commissions I'm working on right now. It's, uh, which I'm super excited about. I'm, I get to kind of push some of the more digital aesthetics within the work. So I, I'm going to be using a, a little more color and a little bit more of a, kind of that, that trompe l'oeil effect of that flattening of space. Um, and then I have uh, a lot of ideas for work that I want to make. So once I finish these commissions, I have kind of several trajectories. I, I, I've been really interested on my shelf back here. There's this piece of 3D printed scaffolding and it's used to hold up an object when you 3D print it. And I've become really fascinated with how to to take that aesthetic, the scab, this like floating image under scaffolding, uh, and how to play with that. Um, so again, I'm learning from my digital processes, but then the trick is how do you bring it into the physical? And I don't know yet, but I'm excited to to play in that space. I love that idea too, because usually the scaffolding is what gets thrown out, right? That's just the leftover stuff. So the idea of yeah. having that and kind of using that as the form or part of the form is pretty is intriguing are you familiar with, so. yeah are you familiar with will penny he's an artist in savannah he taught at scad for a while he was um i guess his background's in painting but he's also heavily influenced with technology and software and trying to find ways to incorporate that into his art but i'll send you a link to his his instagram profile just so you yeah yeah i would love to connect that's great i think it's always nice to find those people he has a show in savannah at laney contemporary i think in january so it's just around the corner if you find your way down south to savannah yes yeah well we don't want to take up too much of your time we really appreciate it and um i look forward to seeing more of your work yeah thank you guys so much for for inviting me and and yeah, maybe I could catch nice. up with you at the nice. the closing ceremony at the on January thirteenth. Yeah, 
if you're there, I'll stop by and say hi. Yes. Yeah, thank you. I will definitely be there. I'd love to see you there. Sounds yeah, good. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming up and, and, and seeing your work in person as well. So great to meet you there. Yeah, it would be. All right, great. Bye. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Best of luck. Take care, Take guys. Care.